0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, it's All In The Mind on RN. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Today, insights into happiness from a miserable prison cell in Cambodia.
0: Uh, searches by a prison officials. I'm hoping that they haven't confiscated my books. James is on a high at the boat. He's out of prison. He's come home. There's that whole surprise, that feeling of freedom. When I first heard that James was arrested and charged with espionage, I, I probably
1: laughed. Australian filmmaker James Rickardson is facing 10 years in prison if he
0: is found guilty of espionage. Mr Rickardson was arrested last year after flying a drone above a political rally in Phnom Penh. There was one stage where we thought he was going to die. He looked like a caged lion. He was covered in sores and fleas and bedbugs. We realised this is a hellhole. No evidence.
1: from ABC's Australian Story broadcast in December last year. Journalist and filmmaker James Rickettson's love affair, as he puts it, with Cambodia began more than 20 years ago when he read an article about the plight of street kids there. As a privileged person, he felt compelled to help and subsequently supported and adopted a young Cambodian girl called Shanti, who now sees him as the grandfather to her children. His ongoing interest in Cambodia and its politics led him to fly a drone to film an anti-government rally in Phnom Penh in June 2017. Soon after that, he found himself surrounded by 13 police who violently arrested him with no warrant and charged him with espionage, a charge he denies. He was held in the notoriously overcrowded and under-resourced prison called Sar for 15 months until he was pardoned for the offence by Cambodian authorities in September 2018. He then returned to Australia. James Rickardson first explained to me the conditions he was living in at Sar prison.
0: I was in three or four different cells. The cell that I spent most of the time in was 140 plus prisoners. We had about one square metre each with our living space. Because I'm basically two metres tall, it meant that my space was two metres by half a metre, essentially a coffin space for me to, to live in. There were only three squat toilets for, say, 140 men. We were in the cells for 20 hours a day. I was very fortunate because I'm white and because I had some money, I was able to get out of the cell for four hours a day, roughly. And I'd spend all of that time walking and talking to some friends that I made in there. Most of the prisoners didn't have that opportunity. Most of them would get maybe 20 minutes a week out of the cell. So the, the living conditions are very, very cramped. It's very hot and the humidity is close to 100%. So it's very uncomfortable. Anybody who has scabies in the cell gives it to everybody else. Anybody who has the flu gives it to everybody else. So everything everything is shared and everybody's sick, or most people are sick most of the time.
1: So you didn't really know exactly how long you were going to end up in jail, did you? No. Can you describe the the range of emotions that you experienced in any one day?
0: Well, what I found most curious was that I experienced a very similar range of emotions in jail to the ones that I experienced out of jail. There wasn't a huge difference. Of course, there were times when I was very pissed off. There were times when I was angry. There were times when I got into battles with the guards and battles with the um, investigating judge. But fortunately, my son came to live in Cambodia and bought me books and bought me healthy food. And I found myself slipping very quickly into a kind of a routine that was... I was going to say, not dissimilar to the routine that I have back in Australia. It was completely different, of course, but I, in emotional terms, it wasn't all that different. And I think that one of the reasons for that, and this is kind of curious, and I'm still, in a sense, processing this, is that when you're in jail, you don't have very much choice about anything at all, right? And there's a certain kind of freedom that comes with not having choices. And what I noticed when I got out of jail after 15 months of no choices and found myself back in Sydney, is that we're confronted by so many choices manifested in like going into Woolworths or Coles and finding that there's 15 different breakfast cereals, there's 15 different coffees, there's 15 different teas, 100 different cheeses, 12 different kinds of milk and everything. And you don't realise until you've been somewhere where that choice is taken away from you that each one of those little choices produces, I think, just a tiny bit of anxiety. Do you know what I mean? It's like a little bit of your the bandwidth of your brain is taken up with thinking about things that you don't really need to think about. And when you're in a cell with only books, and I was very lucky to have books, you don't have the distractions of the internet, you don't have distractions of the news, radio, alcohol, none of the things that we kind of presume most of us think that we need in order to be happy or contented. So... I was kind of forced into a situation where I had to rely on my own inner resources, if you like, and I found that I did pretty well, actually.
1: You read something like 120 books in a period of 15 months.
0: Yes. I started off just reading everything that was in the prison library, some of which, like Papillon, were missing the first 125 pages. Almost all the books were missing pages of one kind or another. I read some books I would never have ever read under different circumstances, Some of them good and some of them not so good. And then my son and my family began sending me books. There was a range from kind of page-turning thrillers to the Iliad to books on philosophy, books on the brain. I kind of had a category of brain food books and just sheer entertainment books. And I'd usually have like three or four different books going at any one time. And depending on my mood, I just want to block out reality. So I'll read a a page-turner or I want to stimulate my mind, so I'll read about a book I read called The Brain Knows More Than You Think, which is a really lovely book about how much your brain knows more than you think it knows. So as far as intellectual stimulation goes, I actually probably had more intellectual stimulation in jail than I have out of jail. I mean, now I'll read maybe a book every two weeks. In jail, I was reading a book every three days.
1: James Rickardson felt like he was wearing two hats during his jail time. One was as a filmmaker and journalist, and the other was the personal experience of being in prison. And he got thinking about the state of being happy.
0: Yes, it's curious It's curious to be in a situation where you become the subject of your own research. I think probably like most people listening to this, there are times in their lives when they've thought, how would I deal with being Quadriplegic, how would i deal with going blind how would i deal with discovering that i've got cancer and only have three years to live i think we all ponder those things but it's not until you're actually confronted by the reality of for want of a better word disaster in your life that you realize how strong you are or how weak you are i actually believe that most of us are much more resilient than we think we are and it's not until things go wrong in our lives that we appreciate that. In theory, we think, oh, my God, if I was to be hit by a car and became quadriplegic or if I was to get cancer or if some terrible disaster happened, I wouldn't be able to cope. But I realise that we all come from a long line of survivors, your grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, going back hundreds of thousands of years, all survived much, much worse things than we have to survive, and that's where we came from. That's why we're here. And I think it's kind of built into our DNA. It's built into our hormones it's built into our culture this ability to be able to survive and to be resilient but because we live such comfortable lives we tend to think that we need the comforts but when we're deprived of those through disaster i think most of us realize that we don't really need them
1: an image that's in my head that I heard about was you sitting on one of the squat toilets under the only light in the right. in the bathroom right. that was shared by 140 right, right. other men, yeah, yeah. writing notes about happiness. Right. How can that be? Well,
0: look, uh, you know, one of the many lessons that I learned in jail, I mean, apart from the fact that you can teach an old dog new tricks... Is that you can adapt to almost anything. And the only light that we had in the cell for 140 people was in the squat toilet. So I got into the habit of getting up at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, using an upturned bucket as my seat, situated about three or four feet from a cut in the tiles on the floor, which was kind of like the urinal, opposite the three squat toilets. And I'd sit on this bucket with my notepad in my on my lap and with a pen, and I'd make notes and write letters to my family. And specifically, I wrote 50 pages of notes about happiness, just as, I was, as the thoughts were coming to me. And I remember on one particular occasion, it was about, I suppose, about five o'clock in the morning, and one of my fellow prisoners came into the bathroom to have a pee. And he was standing, literally just standing right beside me having a pee while I'm writing about happiness. And as he was peeing, some of his urine splashed onto my feet, and my immediate thought was, "Oh God, I better, I better wash that off." And then I thought, "Why do I need to wash it off? It's not a big deal." And so that was one of many of the small lessons that I learned about how much you can actually learn to deal with that you would never think in advance. I mean, when I even tell that story, people say, "How horrible having someone pee on your feet!" But then when you think about it, what's so wrong with that, really? So yes, I, I made. About 50 pages of notes about happiness. A lot of the books that I read, particularly the philosophers, people like Seneca and so on, had pondered what happiness is and, and Socrates, of course, and what is important in life. So those were the thoughts that were kind of floating around in my brain. Plus, I was surrounded by Cambodians who were basically happy. I mean, really and truly, it's unbelievable that you could have 140 men in a, in a cell. And for most of the time, with a few exceptions. They'd be happy. And one of the reasons, I think, is because their lives are so tough anyway, this was not that much tougher than life outside jail, but also because they don't have expectations that we have. I think in our world, in the consumer society that we're a part of, we pitch our expectations to what we're told we need. We need a plasma screen, we need the latest iPhone, we need a big flash car, we need a bigger house, we need a bigger mortgage, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you're in a situation where those choices are not open to you, you just accept whatever is given to you. And so for the most part, my fellow prisoners just accepted not just the privations that they were experiencing, which is a good thing, I think, but the bad side of it is that they also accept that they are treated badly by the... Cambodian judicial system, which is a bad thing, because what I had to do was to fight against the judicial system and make it quite clear that I was not going to accept what they were trying to do to me, whereas most of the Cambodians just do accept it. So it's it's a double-edged sword, that thing, of accepting the world that you're in and, and also wanting to change it and doing what you can to change it.
1: You're with All In The Mind on RN, I'm Lynn Malcolm, and I'm speaking with Australian journalist and filmmaker James Rickardson, who spent 15 months in Sar prison in Cambodia, having been accused of espionage, a charge he denies. During his time in prison, living under terrible conditions, he got thinking quite deeply about what it is to feel happy and have a sense of well-being. I asked him whether he was able to make close emotional connections with others whilst in prison. And just a warning that he uses some strong language in his response.
0: Um, I did, yes, I did indeed. What I discovered very quickly in jail was that Cambodia is a culture in which strength is respected. The Prime Minister, Hun Sen, is referred to as a strong man. If you're strong, and you stand up for yourself, you'll be respected. So I very quickly adopted an attitude towards the prison guards, towards the police, towards the judicial people that I came into contact with, including judges and prosecutors and so on. And it it was basically, do not fuck with me. Okay, don't fuck with me. And I was really strong, and I pointed my finger at them, which is culturally incorrect. You're not supposed to do that. But I very quickly established that I was a strong person, and you do not fuck with me. But at the same time, With all the guards in the jail, I became very physically affectionate with them. When I'd walk past them, there'd either be a high-five or a touch on the shoulder or or something. And that was my way of letting them know that I wasn't judging them as people. I respected the fact that they had a job to do, $300 a month to do a terrible job. So it wasn't a personal thing. And again, one of the things that I discovered, I think, was how important touch can be. And it's happened to me a couple of times since I've been back as well, where in a situation where there's tension, strife and the potential for something bad to happen, that happened at an airport a few weeks ago, that just just touching somebody on the shoulder can actually defuse the situation.
1: So you, you did form close relationships I, with some people.
0: I did. And also I formed close relationships with some of the prisoners, despite the fact that we're about as far apart intellectually, culturally, as you could possibly But again, one of the things that I discovered was that when you're in a a cell with that many people, it is a bit like being in a tribe and you form bonds of affection with the other people that you're sharing that experience with. And since I've come back to Australia, it is actually very difficult for me to talk about some of the things that I experienced in jail because people who haven't had that experience don't really understand. In the same way that when I was young, I didn't understand the bonds that bound men together who march on Anzac Day. It just didn't make any sense to me. But I I do understand that now. It's not about a glorification of war. It's about a, a glorification, if you like, of the bonds of friendship, warmth, affection, love that exists between men who are in an extreme situation, similar to the ones that they were in, in war. So I actually found myself becoming very fond of a number of prisoners. And I remember on one particular occasion, a man by the name of Mr. T, who was in his early 50s, and he'd just received a 25-year jail sentence. So he was basically going to die in jail. And he got shifted to another cell, and I was surprised when he left that I actually had tears in my eyes. I didn't know him very well; we didn't, we never talked to each other, but we smiled at each other, and we had a kind of a some kind of a bond between us. And so, yes, I became very fond of a number of the Khmer prisoners, and I made a couple of uh, non-Khmer, very good friends. One of whom will, I'm sure, be one of my best friends for the rest of my life, basically.
1: Just going to mental health, and mm. I think you you observed mental illness in jail, too, yes. didn't you?
0: Yes, I did. When I was eventually transferred to the hospital, there were a lot of mentally ill patients in the hospital, and I became very close to a few of them. But Cambodians tend to think of mental illness as the visitation of evil spirits and so on, so they don't treat the mentally ill prisoners very well. I became quite fond of a couple of the mentally ill men. And did all I possibly could to help them. There was one in particular who went by a number of different names. He was about 45 years old. He had lived with his mother. He was quite mad. Lived with his mother. He'd asked his mother to borrow some money. She refused to give him some money. So he burnt the house down and his mother happened to be inside the house, right? But he was actually the sweetest, nicest man, just mad, basically. And... um he was obsessively clean. And once I'd actually got the other men in the cell to accept the fact that he was different and shouldn't be treated as as bad, and that involved a bit of physical stuff on my part. There was one time when a prisoner kicked him, and I, I bashed the guy on the back. I said, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. So they eventually came around to treating this mentally ill guy as well as I did. And he then found for himself in the cell a role which was, because of his obsessive cleanliness, was cleaning the cell. Now, sometimes he went too far because he'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and (laughs) he'd be cleaning the cell while we're all trying to sleep. And so there was a place for him in that small tribe, if you like, in that community where once everybody accepted the fact that he was odd and he calmed right down because he used to talk through the night and make noises and so on. But once he'd actually found a place within the cell, he was fine.
1: Did you ever feel that your mental health was compromised in any way because of the experience in jail?
0: Well, I didn't, but members of my family did. (laughs) Um, I felt myself to be basically sane the whole time that I was there. I mean, I had a couple of bad nights and I had a couple of low periods, but I have those out of jail in normal life anyway. But members of my family, and this was a, a point of conflict between myself and my family, They felt that some of the decisions that I was making vis-a-vis challenging the Australian government to do something to help me, challenging the Cambodian judiciary, basically challenging everybody and being strong, because that was what I decided to do, is to be strong. The attitude of a lot of people, including my family, was, no, that I should be meek and humble and apologetic and not make waves. And I could see the logic of their argument on the other side of the prison wall and back in australia but i actually felt that that my position was a much stronger one but anyhow they they were very concerned about my mental health on a couple of occasions i know my older brother was concerned that i might kill myself which was never never an option at all anyhow, i've still been presented with no evidence and i still don't know what country i'm supposed to be spying for is it australia is it the united states which country am i spying for
1: James Richardson, when he was sentenced in
0: 2017. On the day that I was sentenced to six years in jail, I was in court and I was expecting again to be released. All the reports that I was getting from behind the scenes were because there was no evidence in court that I was a spy. None was presented. And I had been told, well, you know, they're going to let you go. So when I got the six-year jail sentence, my first thought was to be really pissed off. And as they were taking me out of the court, I managed to open the window of the van that I was in and shout to the media which country am I spying for or whatever the words were I used. So I was, I was pretty pissed off, basically. But then as I, as I was actually driving back to Praysar, I thought, well, 120 books in 15 months, blah, 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 that's about 500 books that I'll get to read if I do actually spend six years all up in jail. So, That's looking on the bright side. Well, it is looking on the bright side, but I... After I got out, people said, did you ever lose hope? And I said, well, what is the alternative? I mean, what is the there is no alternative to hope, basically. So I think that most of my life I've lived in that way to the extent that I can, that when things do go wrong, and they do go wrong for everybody emotionally, professionally, in all sorts of ways, that you have to find the things that life is presenting you with rather than lamenting the things that life has taken away from you or circumstances have taken away from you. So, look, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm happy all the time, but I think that there are ways in which we can all kind of flick a switch and say, okay, this is a disaster. What can we make out of the disaster? And the other thing that I think is that we see it all the time in our own culture in Australia, when there's a disaster of some kind, usually a bushfire, and look at the way in which people rally together and become a kind of a tribe for a short period of time. Everybody's helping everybody else. Everyone's kind of equal. So I think there are lots of lessons to be learnt for me personally. Um, what were the
1: deepest lessons that you learnt about being happy and having a sense of well-being?
0: wellbeing? On the one hand, I think, happiness is a choice. I think you can choose to be happy. I'm a little bit leery of the word happy. I think it's a bit too superficial. And I'm not even sure that happiness is the most interesting of the emotions that we can all experience. I think contentment is probably a higher one myself. But you do have a choice. and That's the way in which you see the world. And if you see the world as being the glass half full, or half empty, I mean, then chances are you're not going to be very happy. If you see the glass half full or even a bit more than being half full, then the chances of you being happier, much greater. I also think that, again, living in our consumer society, that if you pitch your expectations in life to below what you earn, so you've got a bit of a buffer zone, you're okay. But I think that what happens in our society all too often is that if you're earning $100,000 a year and you're spending $110,000 a year, you're always going to be frustrated and anxious and how am I going to find the extra 10000 and can I get another credit card and so on. So I think a lot of it comes down to modifying one's desires such that they're in sync with the reality of your life. Do you know what I mean? And at every stage in your life, we'd probably all wish that we were richer or better looking or younger or whatever, which is just a recipe for unhappiness. And of course, we live in a culture which thrives on unhappiness. I mean, it'd be very difficult to run a consumer society if everybody was happy, because who'd buy the new, latest new iPhone?
1: So you seem to have learnt that you're more resilient than you thought you were.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: How could you possibly impart the secret to that to others who haven't been through such terrible ordeals? Well, I think,
0: I think all that somebody like myself who's had this experience can do is as honestly as possible and without gilding the lily without making it seem as if it was all kind of wonderful fun being in jail, is just to talk to people, to young people in particular, about how strong they are and how much stronger they probably are than they think they are.
1: James Rickardson has plans to write and produce a TV series on the topic of happiness, drawing on the insights he gained from his time in jail.
0: Even though I'm a bit leery of the words happy and happiness, because I think they're a bit shopworn, basically, because there are all sorts of other experiences that we have, like joy, contentment, pleasure, satisfaction. There's a whole range of different experiences we have. And happiness is not, I think, the best of them all. But still, it's it's a word that everybody understands. I think the questions are, what is it? that makes us happy? Is our happiness contingent on the circumstances of our lives, like if we live in a nice house, if we have a nice car, if we have plenty of possessions or anything? Or is it something that kind of bubbles up from within us? Is it something that some of us are born with, with a certain potential to be happy? I mean, I think I was born lucky in many ways, but I think I was lucky to be born with a kind of an optimistic outlook on life. And I've got very good friends who... We're not born with an optimistic outlook, but with a pessimistic outlook. And I don't think that that's something that they are responsible for. I think it's just something that happens. I'm curious to know, and this is a subject I don't know nearly enough about at the moment, but I'm curious to know about what role hormones play in our happiness because clearly they they rule our lives in all sorts of ways. And some of us have hormonal imbalances that affect our moods and so on. Some of us get bigger doses of dopamine and oxytocin and so on than others some people need to take medication in order to balance out their hormones so i'm curious about the biochemical aspects of happiness i'm curious about the philosophical questions that arise and have arisen since time immemorial about what is important in life and i think we all kind of understand that the most important thing in life is love, the love of our children, the love of our parents, the love of our brothers and sisters, and and a love that kind of extends outwards to the whole world, basically. If I do make my television series, one of the series of images I'd love to include in it would be young children and their mothers and fathers, babies. Anybody who's had a baby and a young child and looks at a baby, a young child, laughing smiling encountering the world discovering things the unadulterated joy of a child i think is is what we all long for in a way and that most of us go looking for it in the wrong areas when it comes down to it, children babies and children what they want is to be loved they want to be held they want somebody to look them in the eyes to make them feel important and so on i think all of us are basically just grown up children pretending to be adults and, and our needs are basically the same as children's are. I think it's that simple. All the other stuff, where you live, what your job is, how much money you've got, whether you're tall, short, fat, thin, ugly, beautiful, whatever, all that's kind of incidental stuff. And I think everybody kind of understands that. But somehow or other, we all get conned into believing that we need all this other stuff to be happy.
1: So are there specific areas that you see your future happiness in?
0: I don't even think so much in terms of happiness. I I think in terms of living, as much as I possibly can, a rich and full emotional life, which means embracing a whole range of other emotions as well, other than just happiness. When I got back, I did actually suffer from a little bit of anxiety, and people said to me, do you want to go and see a therapist? And I said, no, I don't really want to. If If it gets really bad, I will. But I actually want to sit with the feeling and have the experience of it because, again, I think that we tend to divide different emotions up into positive and negative categories, which I think is kind of wrong. There's nothing negative about sadness. There's nothing negative about waking up in the morning and feeling grumpy, glum, gloomy, all those lovely old words that my mother used to use, but nobody uses anymore. The word depression is used to cover all of those. And I think that it's part and parcel of our lives to have this range of emotions and we should just embrace them. And if you're sad, be sad. If you're unhappy, be unhappy. Just kind of sit with the emotion of being, feeling whatever you're feeling, because it will pass. And the same thing, of course, applies for when you're really happy and you're on top of the world because you've just fallen in love or won lotto or something. That will pass as well.
1: Australian journalist and filmmaker James Rickardson. And James is inspired by the music you've heard in today's program. It's by Italian composer Ludovico Einaudi. All in the Mind's producer is Diane Dean and I'm Lynne Malcolm. Bye for now.